0: In the late seventh century BC, a new international superpower was on the rise in the ancient Near East. It was actually just the newest iteration of a very old superpower known as the Empire of Babylon. And when Babylon came on the scene and started grabbing power, there were several other powerful nations in the area, and they basically ended up engaged in a massive world war for that entire part of the world. And in the midst of that world war, Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, ended up getting caught up and became a vassal state of Babylon. And while that could just look from the outside, like what happens in politics and in ancient wars, the Bible is very clear that this was not an accident. The chronicler at the end of Second Chronicles writes, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is just another term for Babylonians at this time. And so the point that that passage and others like it is making is that God is doing here what he has always said he would do if his people refused to turn from their sinful ways. He was going to send them into exile in a faraway land. And so after mercy upon mercy upon mercy, after warning them over and over and over again through the prophets, when they refused and refused and refused to turn from their evil ways, God sent them away into exile. And with the first group of exiles that was sent into Babylon was a young man named Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a member of the priestly class of Israel. He was a young man. He was part of the very first wave that also included people like Daniel. But unlike Daniel, who ended up serving in the very palace of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Ezekiel ended up with the exiles who were kept outside of Babylon proper in what would have effectively been like a refugee camp of the time. And while he's there, Ezekiel receives incredible prophetic visions and prophetic messages from God those messages make up what in your Bible is called the book of Ezekiel, an incredibly long, notoriously difficult to understand book of prophecy. It contains visions, the kind of poetic oracles that we're used to seeing in biblical prophecy, some really bizarre um, sign acts where Ezekiel will act different things out. And one thing that happens in the latter half of the book is a vision of a valley. And it's the vision that's going to close up our series through mountains and valleys. We've been talking about the high points in life and the low points in life. And this vision that Ezekiel has in chapter 37 is of rescue and hope in the midst of what is without question the darkest valley imaginable. And so I want you to imagine, before we even read it, imagine being a young man Taken away from the only place that you love, left in a refugee camp outside of a city and a country that is not your own, that is in fact your enemy. And you have just been receiving prophetic messages from God that are incredibly brutal and incredibly difficult. Ezekiel contains some of the most brutal denunciations of Israel's wickedness. Over and over again, God will talk about how everything that is happening to them they deserve. They're getting this because of their persistent unfaithfulness and disobedience and the evil that has been at work. Now, there are plenty of denunciations of of other nations surrounding them as well, but Israel in this book gets some of the worst in the entire Old Testament. And it all kind of builds to a fever pitch in chapter 33, where we learn that Ezekiel, who has been far away from home for years at this point, finds out from a messenger that after several waves of exiles have been taken, finally, Nebuchadnezzar has destroyed Jerusalem. So the city lies in ruins, the temple lies in ruins, and as we've talked about in other messages, to destroy the temple of a god is a way of effectively in the ancient world saying, this god is no more, this people are no more. So to be in Babylon and hear that after all of these prophetic denunciations, now finally the worst has happened. The temple lies in shambles, in ruins. The city lies in ruins. What is left? But there are glimmers of hope throughout the entire book of Ezekiel, one of which comes right before the passage we're going to read today. In the middle of all of that incredibly dark context, God says things like this. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. So there are these moments of hope where God is promising and in vague language, he's going to do something that's going to make them new. But if you're paying attention to just the the horror and darkness preceding this, you're asking, how? How could this possibly happen in the middle of, of both content of the book and a context historically that are just a deep, dark valley? And the answer to that question comes in a vision that takes place in an actual valley. So if you have your Bible, I'd love to invite you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel writes, So Ezekiel, in a vision, is, transla- is transported by the Spirit of God to a valley, and it's a valley filled with ancient dry bones. Now, if you uh, were an ancient person in the ancient Near East, you would immediately be picturing the aftermath of a horrible battle. Battles often took place in valleys. We talked about this last week. You would have one army camped on one mountain and another army camped on the opposite mountain, and they would go battle in the valley in between. Well, after a battle like that, the valley would be filled with bodies, mostly of the losing army. And over time, those bodies would rot and decay and turn to bone. So this is the image that would have been in the mind of Ezekiel and all of his original hearers. And the text goes out of its way to say that these bones are very dry. Now, why does that detail matter? Ezekiel wants you to know these are not just bodies that are still warm, that maybe have some chance of resuscitation. These aren't bodies that are just kind of ready and and just in a perfect state to be resurrected by God. These are bodies that have been dead for a long, long time. This is no kind of princess bride, mostly dead kind of situation. These are the bones of the ancient dead. There is no hope. And so it makes the question that God asks Ezekiel even more poignant. He says, can these Bones live. That word live occurs six different times. It's a verb to live six different times in this passage. It's the central question Can something that is so long dead that has absolutely no hope come back to life? Now, if you're an Israelite hearing this prophetic vision told to you, the first thing you would think is your national situation. You would think, man, it's been years since we were in Jerusalem. And we know now that that the temple is in ruins, the city's in ruins, there's nothing left. We're on the verge of losing our entire identity as a people. How many generations before Israel doesn't even exist anymore, before it's just a footnote in the history of the ancient Near East? Can these bones live? It's the question that you ask when you have absolutely no reason for hope. So I want to ask you, in the middle of the year we've been having, can you relate that question i mean starting in march if we were just to list every painful difficult thing that has happened the list would be ridiculous it would seem like a joke i once said earlier this year that if we tried to make a script for a movie that included all of the disasters that have happened this year it would be considered too unrealistic to even make a good movie but here we are and so when negative thing after negative thing keeps stacking upon each other. And here we are at the end of the year with no hope in sight. Can these bones live is a question that resonates. In a hopeless situation, do we have reason to trust, reason to hope? And so to me, Ezekiel's answer is is beautiful for its humility. He doesn't say, Of course they can. Lord, you can do anything. He doesn't say, you know, yeah, of course, these bones can live. They just have to kind of get their act together and start being obedient again. he, He hears the question and says, oh, Lord God, you know. There's a humility and faith there that is beautiful. Verse four, then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, anytime we read a word like prophesy, and when it's in such an important part, we need to stop and, and rediscover what that word means. Because most of us assume that prophecy means telling the future, but that's not the primary meaning of the word prophecy or prophesy as a verb. To prophesy at the simplest level means to speak the words of God on his behalf. So the prophetic office all throughout the Bible is all about God giving words to a prophet and the prophet repeating those words back to the people or to the king or to whoever the message is for. Now, sometimes, as in this case, those messages do include details about the future, but that's not the main point. Those are incidental. The point is the prophet speaks the words of God. So this command on the surface seems completely ridiculous. He's saying, repeat my words to these dry bones. But the content of the message is absolutely incredible. He says he's going to cause breath. And that word breath is a powerful and confusing word. It's actually translated in different ways, even in this very passage. It's the Hebrew word ruach, and it can mean breath as it's translated here. It can mean wind essence of something, it can mean spirit, either with a lowercase s or with a capital S, meaning God's spirit. Um, So for example, when you see in, in verse one, that the spirit of the Lord sets Ezekiel down in this vision to see the valley, that's the same word. Eight different times translated various ways. But the idea is that God is going to breathe his essence, his spirit, his breath into these bones and cause them to live again. And Ezekiel does it. Verse seven, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. What an incredible scene. I mean, just try to imagine this. In Ezekiel's vision, it's a valley filled with dead, dry bones. And he begins to speak the words of God to the dry bones. And as he does, there's a rattling, a shaking, almost like an earthquake is one way you could translate that word. And the bones pull together and begin to form the bodies of all of the dead in the valley. And not only do the bones pull together, but flesh and skin starts to form on top of them. But it says specifically, but there was no breath in them. And what an incredible picture of what it actually means to be alive. What's revealed right here in a really subtle way is that the main problem is not that these were skeletons without flesh, but that they were bodies without the life-giving breath of God. It is God who makes alive. Verse nine, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, in exceedingly great army. This is the end of the picture. We're about to get the interpretation, but again, I want you to imagine this. The bones rise, they're reconstituted with flesh and skin, and then uh, Ezekiel speaks to the breath, and the breath of God comes upon all of these bodies, and they are suddenly alive again. A great army stands before him instead of a valley filled with dry bones. The breath of God through the speech of God's person, God's prophet, causes them to become alive again. Now, if you're really steeped in the Old Testament, you might be thinking of an Old Testament passage that this is sort of reminding you of, Genesis chapter 2, one of the creation accounts. And as God creates humanity, the way it's described in Genesis 2 is he puts together a man out of dirt, lifeless, but then he breathes his breath upon that lifeless dirt, and it becomes a living man. Beautiful image. Keep that in your mind as we move forward. The rest of the passage that we're going to read is the interpretation. It starts at verse 11. Then he said to me, "'Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, "'Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. "'We are indeed cut off. "'Therefore prophesy and say to them, "'Thus says the Lord God, "'Behold, I will open your graves "'and raise you from your graves, O my people.'" and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. This is a beautiful and clear interpretation. He's saying that what this entire image is about is about Israel's return from exile. Yes, they may feel like they are hopeless. They may feel like they're completely cut off and there's no remedy and nothing will ever be good for them again. But God is saying, no, when this is over, I'm gonna do something that is as unlikely as an entire field of dead bodies coming back to life. I'm going to restore you to the promised land. And he does this. 70 years later, the people of Israel will be released from captivity and they'll return to the promised land. And so it's a beautiful picture of the promise of God to stay true and stay faithful to his people, even when they are not faithful to him. But it doesn't stop there. See, the Valley of Dry Bones may be a picture of Israel's exile, but Israel's exile is itself a picture of something much greater. See, the entire story of Scripture begins with all of humanity, through their representatives Adam and Eve, Choosing to disregard God, to disobey God, to rebel against his good will, and as a result of that rebellion, they are sent out to the east into exile, away from the life-giving presence of God. And from that day forward, from Genesis three onward, humanity has lived under the power of death and decay. See, you and me don't feel like this, and we don't see the world this way naturally, but we are constantly surrounded by dead, dry bones. And what this image shows us is what is required for those bones to be made new, to be brought back to life. And amazingly, it's actually the very thing that comes one chapter before Genesis 3, like we talked about before in Genesis chapter 2. How does God bring humanity to life the first time? By breathing his breath upon them. And if you look at verse 14, again, he says, I will put my ruach, my spirit within you and you shall live. The thing required to make humanity live again after the death that we have been subject to since the beginning, since our ancestors first sinned against God. The thing that is required is a direct action of God. The spirit of God put upon us. See, God is the God who does bring new life to dead things. That's what this entire image shows us. And so the question we have to ask, both for ourselves and for the world today, is, is God still doing this? And the Christian answer to that question is an emphatic and enthusiastic yes. Yes, God is still bringing life to dead and dry bones. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, Lost. It doesn't say you were sick. It doesn't say you were just kind of wounded and needed to be cared for a little bit better. It says you were dead in your trespasses. In the same letter, he talks about walking willingly in the power of the world. You were dead. And if you were a Christian, yours is a story of being brought back to life by Jesus. Every time a sinner bows the knee to Jesus and receives new life, God is breathing life back into dead bones. And this is incredibly good news for all of us in this difficult year. We need to remember that we serve the God of new life, the God who breathes life into dead things. And one of the primary ways that God is still doing this is by God's people speaking God's words. What God has Ezekiel do in this vision is prophesy to the dead bones, speak his words over them. And we get, you know, really caught up with the word prophesy. It can be, it's been abused, it's been misused, it can be confusing. But if you remember at the core, it means to speak God's words. Then we just have to know when God's people speak God's words that have been handed down to us in this book for thousands of years, we are doing that same vocation. And God is bringing people to life through them all the time. Turn with me to one more passage. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's one of my favorites in the entire New Testament. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Recall that Genesis 2 image of God breathing life, doing new creation again. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of Reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. See, if you're a Christian, you have gone from dead dry bones to living breathing flesh because of the work of Jesus. But the beautiful thing is that it doesn't stop there. Paul says you are then given the ministry of reconciliation to be part of the means by which God brings new life into the world every single day. If you're a Christian, what you need to know in the midst of the dark valley is not just that you have been raised to life, but that you have been made a vehicle of that light and life to go out into a dark and broken and miserable world and spread the light of truth by speaking God's word. And so I wanna suggest three ways that you consider doing this. The first is to yourself. We need to become skilled at speaking God's truth to ourselves, especially in dark and difficult times. We all know our brains can go crazy. We can think the most horrible thoughts. Sometimes it's not even because our brains are running wild, but just because we're being reasonable and realistic about the situation we're in. But when times are hard and when we are feeling like we're in the midst of a deep, dark valley, we need to be so saturated in God's words that we can speak them to ourselves in those situations. So when you feel anxious, you need to remember that Peter said, you can cast your anxieties upon God because he cares for you. When you feel hopeless, when you're looking at 2020 and going, man, what is going to happen? Everything just gets worse and worse and nothing's ever going to be good again. You need to remind yourself that the story ends with God wiping every tear and ushering in a beautiful, good new creation. When you feel like your mistakes and your failures have made you unlovable, unsavable, unforgivable, you remember that the word of God says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. When you feel condemned, you remember there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You need the words of God for those dry bone moments when you are at the bottom of the dark valley. You need the truth to speak over them. Speak them to yourself. We also need to remember to speak them to our brothers and sisters. This is a time more than ever where the church needs to be there for one another, to know each other, to check in with each other. And when someone is feeling dark, when someone is feeling broken, when your brother, your sister in faith is is in that dark valley, we need to speak the truth to them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. I love that. And what he means by that, he doesn't mean the Christ who's actually in his heart. He means at any given time, when you're feeling dark, when you're feeling low, your conception of Christ is too weak. It's too small. And you need your brother or your sister to speak the truth of who Christ is into your heart, into your life. And then finally, we need to be people who are speaking God's truth into the world around us, to those who don't know him yet. Paul said, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation, that God is making his appeal through you. You are an ambassador. So remember, you serve a God who breathes new life into dead things. You were a pile of dry bones. I was a pile of dry bones, and we have been made alive by Christ. So in the midst of of darkness and uncertainty in the valley that is 2020, remember, it's not just that God has made you alive but that you have been sent out as a source of that light and life to the world around you. And so I urge you, take that vocation seriously and go knowing that you are empowered by the very spirit of God that brought you to life. God bless you.